Open God's holy word to the book of Jonah. Focus this morning will be on verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1. I'll be reading the whole book. Jonah's in that number 5 spot of those 12 books that come at the end of your Old Testament known as the Minor Prophets. Isaiah, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. They're known as minor simply because they're shorter than the major prophets. Jonah chapter 1, starting with verse 1, reading through chapter 4. Now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of Yahweh. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of Yahweh. But Yahweh hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to Yahweh, Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. And Yahweh appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to Yahweh as God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to Yahweh out of my distress, and He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. 
yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought me up my life from the pit, O Yahweh my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered Yahweh, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. And Yahweh spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And the word of, then the word of Yahweh came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of Yahweh. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose, arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and, the, and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to Yahweh and said, oh, Yahweh, is this is not what I said when I was yet in my country. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, o Yahweh, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And Yahweh said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now Yahweh God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from dis his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. 
But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, and angry enough to die. And Yahweh said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on us sinners. And I, grant, I pray that you grant for us to see just how great our sins are. That we might be astounded all the more at your immeasurable grace. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray this. Amen. One of the best introductions to this little gem of a book was given by a fictional preacher of what is regarded by many as the great American novel, Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Therein, Father Maple begins a sermon, Beloved Shipmates, clinch the last verse of the first chapter of Jonah, and God had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Shipmates, this book containing only four chapters, four yarns, is one of the smallest strands in the mighty cable of the Scriptures. Yet what depths of soul does Jonah's deep sea line sound? What a pregnant lesson to us is this prophet. What a noble thing is that canticle in the fish's belly. How billow-like and boisterously grand. We feel the flood surging over us. We sound with him to the kelpie bottom of the waters. Seaweed and all the slime of the sea is about us. But what is this lesson that the book of Jonah teaches? Shipmates, it is a two-stranded lesson. A lesson to us all as sinful men and a lesson to me as a pilot of the living God. As sinful men, it is a lesson to us all because it is a story of the sin, hard-heartedness, suddenly awakened fears, the swift punishment, repentance, prayers, and finally the deliverance and joy of Jonah. Though immersed in nautical terms and though that novel centers on the white whale, Father Maple, who was a former whaler, knows a great deal more about what the point of Jonah is than many of us landlubbers who are obsessed with the great fish of this book. He says that Jonah teaches us two-stranded lesson. The first lesson that's for all of us as sinful men is the repentance and deliverance of Jonah. The second lesson he goes on to unfold in the sermon concerns him as a pilot of the ship. And it is to preach truth in the face of falsehood. And still, Father Maple misses the greatest point of this book. Greater than Jonah's sin, greater than Nineveh's repentance, is the grace and mercy of God. 
God's grace makes blue whales look like the krill that they feast on. God's grace is so vast that a multitude of blue whale-sized sinners can swim with ease and liberty and find life in the ocean of God's grace. G. Campbell Morgan once wrote, Men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. The most astounding thing in this little book is not that God appoints a well or fish to swallow Jonah, but that He appoints His grace to swallow sinners. This is a well of a tale, a big fish story, and it's true. God's grace is really that big. It's a unique book. It's among the minor prophets, but it's unlike any of them. It's a narrative. There's very little prophecy to it. And yet it begins as so many of them do. The word of Yahweh came to Jonah. The word of Yahweh came. This is a common phrase in the Old Testament, used some 100 times. Of those 12 books known as the Minor Prophets, this phrase introduces seven of them. Joel 1.1, the word of Yahweh came to Joel. Micah 1.1, the word of Yahweh came to Micah, that came to Micah. Zephaniah 1.1, the word of Yahweh that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cush. Haggai 1.1, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Zechariah 1.1, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of Yahweh came to the prophet Zechariah. Malachi 1.1, the oracle of the word of Yahweh to Israel by Malachi. And all of that makes what happens here in Jonah all the more astounding. Because nowhere do we see the word of Yahweh coming to one who is a prophet of God, and that prophet basically responding, no. Moses tried to excuse himself. Elijah whined. Jeremiah wept, lamented, feeling that he could do it no more, but then said that the word of God was as a fire in his bones. But only with Jonah do we find a prophet responding with rebellion and fleeing. Do not take this phrase lightly that occurs so often. The word of Yahweh came. The word of the one who spoke in the beginning and there was. The word of the one who spoke covenant words to Adam saying this is how the relationship will be. And Adam violated those words such that those words carried the force of curse upon all humanity. But not only so, this God spoke again words of grace. The only hope that we have as the offspring of Adam. That there would come the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And then as an unfolding of those words, he speaks to Abraham words of promise that Abraham believes and his belief was counted to him as righteousness. And then as part of the unfolding of that promise, he redeems a people out of Egypt, brings them to a mountain, and out of the fire 
on that mountain, he speaks, and the people hearing the voice of Yahweh tremble and plead for a mediator. Like the gods of the nations, our God is a talking God. He is not mute. His words carry absolute power, absolute authority. When God speaks, He speaks like God. And further, His words, as you see them here, are covenantal and revelatory. They presume a relationship, a relationship in which God, by His Word, makes Himself known. This is the covenant name of God, all caps LORD. This is a very poor translation. It's not a title, it is His name, Yahweh. You remember whenever Moses asked God, whenever the people ask me your name, what shall I tell them? And God replies to him, tell them I am who I am sent you, Exodus chapter 3. He shortens that to I am, and then finally the name built upon those words, Yahweh. Tell them Yahweh has sent you. His name says He is who He is. I am who I am. Only God can define God. There's not another to where you could say He's like this. He is incomprehensible. That doesn't mean that you can't know anything about Him. We can know Him truly as He reveals Himself, but we cannot know Him comprehensively. This is also to say that He's holy. There's none like Him. He is who He is. And there's, there's no other to whom He can be compared. But also as the I am, He's not the I was or the I will be. He is the eternally existent one. He is eternal. He is infinite. He's immutable. He doesn't change. He's the I am. This also speaks to his aseity. That is his self-existence, his of-himselfness. He needs none other. He is independent and dependent on none. This also speaks to him being Lord and sovereign. And so the word of Yahweh is coming to Jonah. This is beyond you being convicted whenever you're sitting across from your friend, I really need to share the gospel with them. It's beyond that. It's beyond an incredible pull to tell the nations about Christ. Say Thailand. And you refusing to see that call confirmed within the body of Christ, refusing to act upon it for whatever reason. It's beyond that. This is something utterly unique, something that, that we will never experience. The word of Yahweh is coming to Jonah as a prophet, an instrument through which God is going to reveal Himself. And although it's unique, it's something that we're privileged to enjoy in a much greater degree in a way. The word of Yahweh doesn't come to us as prophets, but the word of Yahweh through His prophets and through His apostles has come to us. Do not think our sin any less grave for ignoring the word of Yahweh just because we get it secondhand. It is the word of Yahweh.
Don't take these words lightly, saints. The Word of God came, and it's come to us. Our God speaks. He speaks with absolute authority and power. So the Word of Yahweh comes to Jonah, the son of Amittai. How do you hear the word Jonah, the name Jonah? I'm afraid you've been preconditioned to hear it in a, in a, in a certain way, the same way that you're preconditioned to hear the word Pharisee. The problem is that because of this, we fail to be properly carried along and moved by the story very often. We're, we're not hearing the term as it, as it would have been intended by the author. We know that the Pharisees are bad and that Jonah was disobedient. We come to the story already knowing that and we, we begin reading it that way. It's kind of like new math. We've got the right answer, but we can't show our work. We don't know how we got there. We haven't done the proper work to get to that conclusion. Whenever you read a good story, you identify with the protagonist. And this isn't necessarily... We, we'll talk about this as being a bad thing sometimes, such so you're reading the book of uh, Samuel or Kings, and, and you identify with David. And you have David facing Goliath, and, and you think that you're David, and, and Goliath is the bad guy, and God is telling you you can defeat him. Now, that's a bad way to read the Bible and identify with David. You're not David. Jesus is. You're part of the cowardly Israelites. But nonetheless, you should identify with David. He's who you're rooting for in a way. There, there's a way that the story should grip you, and, and who are you for? Who, who, who do you feel affinity for, that the, the, a good story is written away so that it grips you in this way. And whenever you read the book of Jonah, you should be identifying as Jonah and just in the sense that you're, you're rooting for him. Such that whenever you come to verse 3, the breath is knocked out of you. Jonah is a prophet of Yahweh. And because of the way that the story grips you, you should be prepped to see yourself in Jonah's failure. Now, the only other time that Jonah's mentioned in the Old Testament comes in 2 Kings 14, in the account of the reign of Jeroboam II. And that helps give you some historical context as to when these events took place. So Jeroboam the second, let's back up some 150 years and we come to Jeroboam the first. You remember that the kingdom was split in two following Solomon with Rehoboam taking the southern kingdom, Jeroboam the first taking the northern kingdom. And Jeroboam was fearful that many of those northern tribes would defect towards Judah because the temple was there. So he established two golden calves, and he called them Yahweh. He led the people of God to worship Yahweh falsely. His successors would lead Israel to worship a false god, false gods. And Jeroboam II was no exception to that line of bad kings of Israel, leading them deeper and deeper into idolatry. And yet, it's during his reign that we find Something surprising and exceptional. 2 Kings 14, 23-27. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, southern kingdom, 
just given for time, context, when this is happening. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Didn't depart from the sins of the first Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. Here's the surprising part. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of Yahweh, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. For Yahweh saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But Yahweh had not said that He would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so He saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Note that Israel's expressed no repentance. There's no change of heart. They deserve nothing but God's wrath and judgment. And a word of grace comes through Jonah and Jeroboam delivers the nation. So think of how a Hebrew would have read Jonah, the son of Amittai. And their expectations at the word of Yahweh coming to him. Before we're surprised by Jonah, we need to be surprised by Yahweh. Isn't it incredible that our immutable God, He never changes, that our immutable God never ceases to leave us in awe? Our immutable God is also incomprehensible. As one said, he is not a tame lion. In this instance, we're taking it back to see him command Jonah to go to Nineveh. As you read through the prophets, it's not uncommon to see the prophet speak concerning a foreign nation, to even deliver a word of judgment, a word of, of caution, of warning, of impending doom coming to them. That's not uncommon. It's not the norm, but it's not completely absent. What is, is a command to actually go to that pagan nation. The closest thing we see is Elijah whenever he's told to go to the widow of Zarephath, but that wasn't with any kind of word of judgment, and, and that was how Jonah was provided for during those years of famine. Here, Jonah is being commanded to go and preach to this wicked city. It was a great city, we're told. It had a great heritage, at least as far as the pagans were concerned. If you remember in Genesis chapter 10, you see the three sons of Noah, one of them being Ham, and Ham begets Cush, and Cush is the father of Nimrod. And Nimrod is regarded as a mighty man, established many cities, one of them being Nineveh, he's the founder of the city. The city would belong to Assyria, 
would later become their capital. It wasn't at this time, but it's still been long regarded as a great city. It has this great heritage. In Micah 5, 6, Assyria is referred to as the land of Nimrod. You see that kind of heritage that is even so many years later haunting the city. It was a city that was great in size, Jonah 3.3. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Modern excavations have indicated that the city was some seven to eight miles in circumference, large by ancient standards. It was great in population. 4.11, we learn that more than 120,000 people dwelled there. This is all probably counting the city proper, and not the outlying rural population that surrounded it for many miles, perhaps. But it was also, we learn in verse 2, great in evil. Its evil has come up before God. It's great in evil. The whole book of Nahum is a prophecy against this city. Not against the Assyrian Empire at large, it's against the city of Nineveh in particular, the whole book. And chapter 3, the final chapter, is especially telling. It begins this way, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. And it ends saying, There is no easing your hurt, your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. This was a relentlessly violent empire and people. And not only evil, she was exultant. Speaking of Nineveh, Zephaniah says, This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. Does that not sound a lot like Exodus chapter 3 where Yahweh is speaking of Himself? This is a godlike boast. It was Assyria with her capital as Nineveh later in history that would oppress and then obliterate the northern kingdom altogether. And though the scriptures don't speak of any oppression at this point, we do read in the black obelisk of Shalmaneser III that Jehu, the son of Omri, paid tribute to Shalmaneser. Very likely. There's also an Assyrian steel. That was just three kings before Jeroboam II. We also read in, a, in another Assyrian steel that, that it's very likely that Joash, who reigned immediately before Jeroboam, paid tribute to Assyria. Now remember that we read of Jonah and Jeroboam II in 2 Kings 14. In the next chapter, you have the two next kings of Assyria, uh, uh, excuse me, of Israel with very short reign, six months and one month. And then King Menahem seizes the throne by murder. And it's during Menahem's reign that Assyria begins to oppress Israel, and they are mentioned again and again, 2 Kings 15 through 18, again and again until Assyria under Sargon, conquers the northern kingdom and takes away the residents into exile 
repopulates it with people from another kingdom they've conquered. This all is soon to occur. As he later would with Judah, the southern kingdom, God uses a wicked nation to judge his people, and then he judges that wicked nation. And all this is upon the cusp. This is about to dawn as Jonah is sent to declare this message of judgment. To go to this evil city and call out against it. And though Yahweh's command is surprising, it's Jonah's actions that shock us. Instead of, we, we kind of miss the, the play on words that happen. He's told to arise and go, and instead of arising and going, he arises and flees. He wants to go to Tarshish. It wasn't like he was going to the bus stop and getting the cheapest ticket in the opposite direction. He has picked out a destination. He wants to go to Tarshish. It's mentioned three times for emphasis in verse 3. Where is Tarshish and why? Well, as best as we know, it's on the northwest coast of the Mediterranean Sea with the most likely destination being in Spain. That would take him as far away in the known world as possible from Nineveh. We learn in Genesis 10 that the city was founded by the descendants of Japheth. And this is significant because as we're reading Old Testament history, the interactions that Israel has are with her cousins, the descendants of Shem, and the descendants of Ham, which would involve the Canaanites, the, the Babylonians, the Egyptians. She had very little dealings with anyone from Japheth that we can read of. And the result is, these people don't know Yahweh. So we read in Isaiah 66, God saying, and, I, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Jubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. Jonah wants to go where Yahweh is not known, because he's fleeing the face of Yahweh, and he is running from his calling. Instead of north towards Nineveh, he begins by going south towards Joppa, that port city that was due west of Jerusalem. And from there, instead of going east towards Nineveh, he goes as far west as possible to Tarshish. Is there anything more futile than trying to run from God. He's not just trying to run from His calling. He's trying to flee God Himself. And, and I don't think he really believes he can hide from God. You remember the mariners ask him who, who His God is, and he says He's the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. You can't get away from Yahweh. And still... I don't think he's thinking he can actually get away, but this is what all of us do in our sin. 
This is what our sin itself is. Sin is a trying to pretend that God isn't there. All sin is the foolish man saying there is no God. It's a daring of God. Like our father Adam, we try to hide from the face of God. I imagine that Jonah was probably familiar with David's psalm, the 139th psalm. Verses 1 through 12, we read, O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is, too high. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall, be on, shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say surely darkness shall cover me, And the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You cannot hide from God, nor can you hide your heart from Him. The inescapable God exposes us all. But I believe Jonah's intent in fleeing from the face of Yahweh is much more grave than just trying to run because of fear and shame. See, this phrase that you have as the presence of the Lord is much better translated the face of Yahweh. The face of Yahweh to the Hebrew meant blessedness and life. The priests were instructed to bless the people, Numbers chapter 6, saying... Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. See, whenever Jonah's fleeing from the face of Yahweh, he's fleeing from the people of God where Yahweh has promised to dwell in their midst as their king. He's fleeing from the people of God, where He has set His house, where He has set His name. I don't think Jonah had the intent to reject Yahweh and His covenant altogether, but that's effectively what he's doing. And that's precisely what professing Christians do when they run from the church. Because I'm not speaking about a building. I'm speaking about the people of God as they've covenanted together. Because when you flee from the people of God, you flee from the place where God has said, I dwell in a special covenant manner to carry forth my purposes in this age. Don't presume 
well, let me say this. I don't, I don't think Jonah intended this, but this is what he did. And I don't think that many, when they leave the church, have that intention either. They'll still say that they love God. They might even say they love God's people. But they're fleeing from the place where God has set His name, in a sense. And the warning is, don't presume that God will send sea and storm to bring you back to Him when you do that. But know that if you are truly His, His severe mercy and firm discipline will bring you back. Here's Jonah wanting to flee to Tarshish, wanting to flee God. He goes to Joppa, and there he finds a boat going to Tarshish. The way is broad and easy that leads to destruction. If you want to flee God, you'll always find a boat heading to Tarshish. You can always hail a cab to Sodom right on the spot. Sinclair Ferguson wisely warns, do not be guided by providences when you are refusing to be guided by God's Word. Don't take that job opportunity that just seems to land in your lap whenever your heart is set on sin. Oh, it just looks like it's got to be God's will. Everything's landing out this way. Ferguson goes on, when we have a heart... To rebel against God, there will, be free, there will frequently be the providential means put before us to give us the opportunity. But when we are on the run from God, His providences are wise tests. They are never gracious excuses. Providence was indeed at play here, but not for Jonah's purposes, but for God's. That's what providence is. It's His purposes being worked out in history. Fleeing from God is futile because He's not only omnipresent, He's omnipotent. You cannot flee His presence, nor can you flee His providence. He is everywhere present and present as Lord, sovereign. And at this point, I hope you're ready to scream. Why? Why? Masterfully and suspensefully, the author doesn't tell you until until chapter 4. And there Jonah says, Yahweh, is this not what I said to you while I was still in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. This shows that Jonah indeed was really trying to flee Yahweh. What he didn't want was for God to be God. We saw in chapter 3 that that God's name discloses who He is as being infinite, incomprehensible, holy, holy immutable, eternal, possessing a saity. But in chapter 34, God reveals something further of what His name is meant to communicate to His, further, His, His covenant people. He, speaking to Moses, we read in chapter 34, Yahweh descended in the cloud 
and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. He's proclaiming his name. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. He's just, but he's also merciful. And that, not God's justice, but His mercy is what scared Jonah. Jonah knew that the reason he was being sent to speak out against Nineveh was that she might have opportunity to repent. Later through Jeremiah, God would say, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And we've screamed, why at Jonah? But unless you're prepared to scream, why at yourself with equal indignation, you've missed the point of this book. We're Jonah. God earlier told His people why something like this might happen. Deuteronomy 32. It's a prophetic word. They have made me angry with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. See, as the ancient Hebrew was reading this, who are they rooting for? They're Jonah, and then they find themselves to be Jonah. Jonah is us. Father Maple went on to preach, As with all sinners among men... The sin of this son of Amittai was in his willful disobedience of the command of God. Never mind now what that command was or how conveyed, which he found a hard command. But all the things that God would have us do are hard for us to do. Remember that. And hence he oftener commands us than endeavors to persuade. And if we obey God, we must disobey ourselves. And it is in this disobeying ourselves wherein the hardness of obeying God consists. Do you ever find the commands of God hard? If not, I'm afraid you don't know yourself or your Bible. Is there a command that God could give you that you would ponder fleeing? If you answer yes without hesitation, I think you're probably answering without honesty. And yet still, if you, if you don't answer with the kind of humble, oh, that it would be so, by God's grace, that I would never answer no, then I would question whether or not you truly know Him as well. Is there a person, a people, a segment of society, a place that if God actually spoke and said to go there, you would give pause to obey. 
Is there any hatred, animosity, bitterness, prejudice in your heart that would give you pause? Penn Gillette, the illusionist, is an atheist, but even he has this degree of wisdom. He said, if you really believe this, how much do you have to hate a person not to tell them? Oh, it may not be some kind of prejudice or or hatred, but how much pride of saving face or fear of man might prevent you from obeying the clear command of God to make disciples, preach the gospel. We are Jonah. Do you see nothing of yourself in him? If we fail to weep over our own sin and disobedience and rebellion and scream, why? We've missed the point of this book. Because the major point of Jonah is not God's great grace to sinners out there. The emphasis is upon God's grace to great sinners right here. God's great grace for sinners is the central point of this whole book. But that point is most magnified not with the repentant mariners or the repentant Ninevites. It's most magnified in God's patience towards Jonah. I'm assured that because of all the privileges that we enjoy as the people of God, our sins are the most grievous and great. But our consolation is this. God's grace is greater still. Though speaking of grace as it was needed for ministry... Spurgeon's point holds true of grace in regards to forgiveness when he writes, I was riding home, very weary with a long week's work, when there came to mind this text, My grace is sufficient for thee. But it came with the emphasis laid upon two words, My Grace is sufficient for thee. My soul said, doubtless it is. Surely the grace of the infinite God is more than sufficient for such a mere insect as I am. And I laughed and laughed again to think how far the supply exceeded all my needs. It seemed to me as though I were a little fish in the sea. And in my thirst I said, alas, I shall drink up the ocean. Then the father of the waters lifted up his head sublime and smiling replied, Little fish, the boundless main is sufficient for thee. Though our sins are against an infinitely worthy God and deserving nothing more than an infinite hell, we really are made to look like little fish swimming in such a vast ocean. The grace that we have is extended to us 
because the Word of God came. He came and He came incarnate, enfleshed. He came and He perfectly obeyed the Word of Yahweh for us. And He came and He was thrown into the tempest of God's wrath for our disobedience. And He was in the belly of this earth for three days and rose triumphantly from the grave. Full of grace for sinners. Sinner, if you know not Christ, the Word of God, the Word of the Gospel is coming to you today. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is grace so great that though you be a well of a sinner, you'll be made to look like a minnow in His infinite grace. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on our souls. I pray that we would know such depths of grace, that we would be astonished at our sin, and we would be humbly and eagerly willing to tell others of our God and His grace and mercy. In Christ's name, amen.